0: Welcome to another episode of the Learn Fresh podcast. My name is Nick Monzi, CEO and co founder of Learn Fresh, and I'm joined by my co host, Calvin Seibert, our chief mission officer, aka Coach Calvin, aka the game changer of education. Changing the game. On this
1: podcast, we talk about the intersection between education and community. How does the broader community provide value to the education sector, our schools, and out of school time programs and what can education do to prepare students
0: for the broader world today we're joined by jim Lenowitz and uchenna azibay of the overdeck family foundation the overdeck foundation was founded with the goal of providing all children the opportunity to unlock their potential through an exclusive focus on enhancing education both inside and outside the classroom in the areas of early childhood, informal STEM education, and K-9 programs that support educators and student-centered learning environments. Gemma and Uchenna work with the Foundation's Inspired Minds
1: portfolio, which focuses on expanding access to high-quality out-of-school STEM learning experiences that deepen family engagement, build STEM mindsets, and inspire students with joyful and rigorous learning. Learn Fresh has been a grantee with the Inspired Minds portfolio since 2019.
0: All right, so Gemma Uchenna, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, we're gonna talk through a couple different areas of interest here. First, we'd love to get to know each of you a little bit more you know, where you've come from in your career, what you're doing now at Overdeck, what you're thinking about generally in your work. Uh, we'd love to spend some time talking a little bit about the out of school and family STEM space, which is a primary area of your grant making to learn how you're thinking about shifts there and where you hope to see the field go in the future. And then finally, we have a couple of questions about grant making itself and just how you've evolved in the process, how you're thinking about pushing that process forward and changing and influencing the sector. Um. So to start, I'd love to just have you share a little bit about your backgrounds, you know, who you are, where you're from, what your current role looks like. Uh, Gemma, if you want to get started and then pass it over to Uchenna.
2: Sure. Thanks so much to LearnFresh and to Nick and Coach Calvin for having us today. Really excited to be with you guys. Um, I'm Gemma Lenowitz. I've been a program officer at Overdeck Family Foundation for uh, about three years. I've been a teacher, a field trip coordinator, a STEM coordinator. Um, and I came into STEM because I was originally assigned through Teach for America to, to teach ELA, right? I was, I was teaching English and poetry and lots of subjects around reading and writing, which I thought were really important. But ultimately, kids always wanted to go to their science class. And so the second year I was in the classroom, I begged my principal to let me teach science and caught up on a ton of science fundamentals that I needed to know as it had been a while since I had sat through like a, you know, rocks for jocks style <laughs> ge- geology or through time moment. But um, I loved how engaged kids were, how curious they were, and how the whole science pedagogy was about inquiry. And so really came into the Inspired Minds portfolio, excited to contribute to more opportunities for kids to be curious. And now we make about 20 or 25 grants a year and help organizations scale, research their evidence-based practices and you know, grow their impact, both you know, through this challenging time of COVID-19, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, but also thinking about how education is shifting into the future.
3: Um, and very similar story actually, um, also a former teacher. Uh, I started teaching French, yep, yep, yep. Uh, it's, once you're a teacher, always a teacher. So still have you know kids that tutor and do things on the side, tutor French here, tutor, tutor Arabic there. But um, uh, when I was in the classroom, I started teaching French and math. And just like Gemma, I was like looking across the hall at science teacher and I was like, oh, that class looks like a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, I mean, just coming into having like the questions of the universe and then delving into these really, really interesting topics, uh, every day just seemed like a, like a huge kick. So I begged the principal, can I really, can I go and teach science next year? Um, and I was able to do that and loved, loved being a science teacher, uh, did a little bit of time also teaching in the out-of-school time STEM space. Uh, so now that we're making those those grants to that sector, it's its really kind of very interesting to come full circle because I used to be the person writing the grants and trying to fund the programs. Um, a little bit of time in ed tech, a little bit of time in like study abroad, but the heart was always uh, in the classroom.
0: Awesome. I know Calvin, you can relate to the piece around still supporting students and tutoring and all those things.
1: Absolutely. It doesn't stop. You know, they get older, the questions get... Uh, a little bit deeper <laughs> but they remember you and and it's like those are our those are our extra kids you know pretty much forever you, you all know how it is yeah
0: so chenna i i'd love to talk a little bit about you, you talked a little bit about what inspired you to pursue a career in stem which i was going to ask about but the shift to grant making what what pushed you or what motivated you to to take that step across the aisle if you will to the other side of the funding landscape well, it's actually funny.
3: I spent all that time applying for grants and and on the grantee side of things. And I never actually thought about being a, a grant maker. You know, I, I, when I was in the classroom, I always said, you know, I love doing this for the 15, 20 kids that are in my classroom, but how can I have a larger impact? So then I went into the out-of-school time space and I tried EdTech, and I had all these different kind of uh, uh, pursued all these different avenues to try to have a larger impact, but never thought about being a grant maker. And Overdeck just kind of came out of left field, and within like like two minutes of just like Googling Overdeck Family Foundation, and their impact, and the types of uh, the types of um, organizations it was supporting, I was like, Oh my god, this is amazing! Like to be able to to kind of take this fifty thousand foot view of education but then also work directly with an organization and have that kind of granular focus on like, what are you actually doing for the kids in like your community? So um, it came out of left field. It wasn't something that I like was shooting to go towards. It was something that I I realized was an opportunity. And then I kind of kicked myself like, why did I never even try to pursue this in the past? So a a happy accident.
0: (laughs) For sure. Are there any things that you were surprised by when you moved into grant making that were kind of like happy surprises? Are there any things that you missed or miss now from the classroom kind of what, what are your reflections now that you've made that shift
3: yeah um you know we're not as close to the student like that's the beneficiary right like it's the kids who are actually you know learning today like we're, we're a little bit farther from 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 that level of analysis as a grant maker because the organizations who have the boots on the ground and are are doing the work so that was something I missed but but then to look at Like you know, looking back at, I've been in grant making for a year. I didn't say that in my in my uh, introduction, but I just passed my my one year anniversary. And it's like look at some of the stats put together, like all of the organizations we've supported have helped, you know, tens of thousands of students. Uh, You know, this amount of you know the the, the amount of funds that we've been able to direct towards these organizations, uh, it's it's pretty astounding. So it's a trade off, but. you know, you all like listening to the podcast and listening to some of the teachers that y'all had in episode two, and listening to both of you all stories and like that. Like you all are close to the kids, so through you all vicariously, we can still have that impact. Um, things that surprised me, uh, I guess it's 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 complicated work. You know, I mean, there are a lot of issues, and and there's not a lot of just clear cut solutions. Like every community has a different. You know, has a different suite of problems they're facing. The context shifts geographically, you know, by grade, by uh, intervention. So, so you know, you have to you have to consider so many different factors and so many different things. But um, it's exciting work, and even if we don't have a clear cut solution, just working at the problem is uh, is very satisfying. And when you have great support like like Gemma and everyone else at off it it, it makes it makes it easy.
0: For sure. And the layers, you know, there's so many layers within our work and different contextual things that we have to consider. And then when you pull forward to your level and you're looking at all these different organizations, the breadth and complexity of it is immense, I'm sure. Gemma, could you share a little bit, too, about your own shift into grant making? What motivated that and then kind of your reflections now that you've been in the work for a bit?
2: Sure. I think as I worked with students who are getting older, becoming adults... I understood how many pathways there were, and, and thinking a little bit more holistically and wanting to expand the strategy of, of programs that I looked at and opportunities for different pathways for kids to define their own journey. Um, I think the foundation is this amazing 30,000-foot view of what's happening in the field, and we have the absolute privilege of getting to talk to a lot of different you know, audiences and uh, sources, fonts of learning for us, about you know, what are people proposing that's innovative? What are people trying that's working or not working? Um, and so from this platform, I think we have a responsibility to share a lot of that back with the field. And that's been something we're working on, um, you know, as using Inspired Minds as a, you know a platform for talking about Um, STEM self-efficacy, for STEM mindsets, which are relatively new, you know, in the field of research and education, this idea that there's a huge connection between social-emotional learning and academic gains, and that not just kids, but also teachers, educators, and families have a ton of influence on how kids develop those mindsets. So I think trying to have a differentiated position and then carve out value in the field um, is not an easy trajectory for every program at a foundation, um, but it's, it's worth investing a lot of time and effort on, on our end. And our grantees, of course, make it a lot easier. Um, make that happen with the insights, with all of the um, interesting conversations that they have with one another, with the quality of leaders that we see you know, at the helm of many of our grantee partners like LearnCash.
1: My, my first question is for Gemma. Um, your work at Overdeck has focused strongly on the out-of-school and family STEM space. What's the motivation for this focus, and why is it so critical to support this area of education?
2: Yeah, thanks for the question. I think because children's time outside of school is such a ripe opportunity to cultivate their curiosity, and all kids have innate curiosity within them. So if you have really high quality STEM experiences, they allow kids to thrive in their own natural, you know, curious ways and to develop deep relationships with one another and with educators that allow them to deepen their interests in something, explore new areas and, you know, really expand their minds beyond the horizon of what they already know. And I think the family component comes in because there's a lot more choice in out-of-school time than there is during the school day. For the most part, kids go to the school in their neighborhood, their community, and they're assigned to a teacher. And that teacher runs through a set of lessons that are structured based on a curriculum. You know, all that is great, especially if done well, but um, it doesn't give a lot of time for, for choice and exploration. And so we know families are critical for supporting kids' learning and early development. And so we also fund work that aims to strengthen family STEM learning opportunities and environments and make families aware also of how STEM experiences can be really powerful for shaping a child's identity and giving them access to a whole set of career pathways that are you know, able to unlock a lot of economic opportunity, but also like, help kids solve the most interesting and relevant problems of our day. Um, this next generation is inheriting a totally different world than, you know, us as adults can even conceive of. Um, and It's really their future and we want to set them up to be successful.
1: I love how you said that, too. You know, the experiences, um, you know, our program, NBA Maths, is uh, you know, our premier product right now. And, and I like to always be able to say that the experience is be, beyond the board game. Is what really takes the kids to the next level, you know, a board game where you're learning those math facts. It's connected to the NBA, and then and then you know on the other side of it, um, you're you're meeting players. You're getting getting an experience where you're meeting different students from all over. So uh, I really like how you said the experience part and and the community. Absolutely, it it does boil down to the community that's helping to raise you know all the kids. You know, the saying is it takes a village to raise a child, so we're, we're not getting away from that. We're still there. And uh, the, the the more we share with a student, um, with the students, the, the better opportunity they will have. And I was that same teacher in the classroom that wanted to push, push, uh, you know, push the door open. Like, hey, we're not, I know this is uh, in our curriculum and we have to teach this, but I'm also going to teach you about this so that they could think about, you know, the next level. Um, a lot of a lot of students, uh, when they when you when you tell them, or when you ask a lot of kids, hey, do you want to make it? You know, what do you want to do in life? A lot of kids. Uh, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and a lot of kids say, I want to be in the NBA, I want to be in the NFL, or I want to be a rapper. And usually, those three things are the ones that stand out. But they they don't even uh, understand the jobs that are inside of the NBA teams that are not even playing, or the jobs that are inside of the NFL space. Um, and even even in the rap space, if that's what it is, everybody can't rap and everybody doesn't have a jump shot <laughs> and everyone can't run a touchdown. So uh, if you want to be in that space, you know, we as educators, we can open up that window for them so that they can find find it in that area.
2: Plus, it takes a village to produce a song and, you know, to score a touchdown. It's not just... A wide receiver, right? You need a whole team if there's hundreds of people on the sidelines and supporting that process.
1: Absolutely. I'm 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 not gonna mess with my Detroit Lions right now, but I'll let that go. <laughs> so on that note, my next question is for Chenna. Uh in what ways have you observed an increase or shift in the importance of informal STEM learning during the pandemic?
3: Yeah, well, uh I mean the informal STEM space, because it's not attached to like a school system or a district can very often innovate in ways that, that might be unique or might be accelerated versus the in-school context. So um, when a lot of schools were struggling to figure out how to go online, there were a lot of out-of-school programs that already had virtual options that were already uh, doing some of those programs. Um, and then additionally, you know, a lot of these students were in a classroom surrounded by their peers and all of a sudden now you're you're at home on your own you know you're losing a chance to to have some of those social emotional benefits and and developments that would come from going through a regular school year and the out of school time stem space, the out of school the out of school time stem space can very often uh, uh, be a place where some of that SEL development can, can be a bit easier you can focus on the lesson just like you were saying you know we'll focus on the lesson but we can also focus on the perseverance it takes to figure out that really cool solution or let's do a, a long-term project where you're gonna have to dive deeper into a problem whereas you know within the school year you might just be working on that unit for a week or two weeks and, and then moving on um but it's also very challenging you know a lot of out-of-school time uh workers were, were were unable to to weather the pandemic a lot of organizations had to
2: furlough or lay off
3: workers a lot of uh, uh, you know, a lot of programs really suffered. So it's, it's, it's a give and take, but those programs that were able to be successful, I think they learned a lot of really innovative approaches that hopefully will, will persist after the pandemic. Um, Nick said something in, in episode two, if I recall correctly, uh, that, you know, and I think both of you were talking about this, how some people call it a lost generation, but actually this is a generation of students who were going to have learned a uh, uh, ways to adapt and ways to be flexible, like unparalleled. Like if I was a kid going through this, I have no idea how I would be able to, to, to weather some of these things. So, so these kids are going to come out of this having learned so much. And, uh, and it's going to be a generation of, of, of you know, gritty, able to adapt, able to be online, offline, hybrid. Um, and, and, and you know I'm really excited to see what this generation comes up with because like Jenna said, uh, the world is, is is so different compared to what it was when when I was their age, and and they're the ones who are going to be, you know, they're the ones who are going to be leading the charge and, and, and on the front lines, you know, now moving forward. So, all
1: right, my um, my last question is for both of you all, and Jimmy, you can go first. Uh, aside from Learn Fresh, what solutions in the out of school STEM space are you most excited about?
2: Yeah, great question. I think these continued blends of various modes of enrichment. So any program that is thinking as creatively as you all are about their digital experience and their, you know, in-person experience and what the hybrid model of that looks like, we're really excited about programs that have strong digital engagement, strong retention, um, you know, kids coming back and building communities online, but then going offline and talking to their friends about it or engaging with their cousin, talk, you know, showing them um, the new apps they can play together. Uh, so I think that, that sense of balancing, um, you know, the virality of something new with something that you're gonna consistently stick with and, and keep working on and, and programs that create next levels for kids to advance through. And they don't just say like, you know, okay, congrats, you finished our program, good luck but programs that actually structure the next experience and give kids additional questions to think about or additional people to talk to. Um, And and particularly when we're thinking about students furthest from opportunity, there's not always gonna be that obvious next answer because especially for STEM, social capital hubs in our country, we know that opportunities are not equally distributed. So then how do you think about a kid you know, who doesn't have a scientist on their block or an engineer coming to their school, like how do we create that experience in out of school time um, in a way that increases the number of opportunities for all kids? And then I would say another sort of theme we're really interested in is partnership and the way that school districts or schools or state education agencies can partner effectively with their out of school time and community-based organization partners to make a coherent experience for kids. And because ultimately, even in this era of, you know, stimulus funding for education, we still know it takes significant resources and novel strategies to, you know, get kids in front of hands-on experiential learning. So in order to resource that, we need coordination and we want to make it maximally efficient. And I think collaboration is the way to do that. So we're excited about programs that are thoughtfully partnering, building that digital engagement and then I'm happy to give some specific shout outs <laughs> to some of our grantees, like Science Action Club. They're doing some incredible citizen science projects, um, getting kids connected to you know authentic learning. Um, yeah, I'll let her China shout out some other grantees.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll stay and double click on the experiential learning piece for a second. Um, like one thing I really tried to take to heart when I was a teacher was that like if the kids are not they don't have to necessarily be like having, you know, throwing up arms fun every time they're coming to class, but they, has to be, they have to be like a curious and somewhat invested in what the content is. If, if, if you're not having some fun, you're probably not retaining that information. Um, so student driven learning is, is something that's super exciting. You know, like Science Action Club, like learn fresh, you know, like, like NBA math saying, okay, you're interested in sports, there are all these different aspects to sports. Well, what parts of that speak to you and how can you connect that to, to your learning? And that, that takes something that was just dry and just statistics and makes it, you know, you know put, puts life into it and embeds something that really uh, the, the student cares about. Um, so student-driven learning, you know, what are you curious about? How, we, how can we turn that into a project that's, you know, not only uh, uh, important to you, but important to your family, important to your community, Um, That's very exciting, and the other thing is 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 uh, focusing on the family context and engaging families. I think the pandemic has really um, like shined a spotlight into what the home context is like. When I was I was teaching for a little bit during the pandemic, and instead of as a kid coming to school, now we're coming into your living room and we're seeing the dog, and we're saying mom, we're saying dad, and we're seeing all these different different uh, uh, home scenarios. And you know, we've we've seen the stats about. Uh, you know, parent anxiety, especially parent math anxiety and how that can rub off on the student and, and lead to the student having higher math anxiety and how that leads to different outcomes. And, and, you know, even after the pandemic is done, students are gonna still be spending, uh, you know, 70, 80% of their, of their time in the home context. So how can programs leverage families, bring families into the learning experience? Um, we, have, we have a lot of programs you know, like PBS SoCal is, is really focusing in on that um yeah i mean everybody has to be focusing on the family right now because that's where the student is and uh that that's something that's that's been very exciting uh and really hope that that persists after after the pandemic is is over which we hope is in the near future
1: yeah that made me just think of uh we in in little rock we have a family nba math hoops league where the kid plays with the parent together and that that was that was before the pandemic so I was just thinking when you said family and pulling them in, um, I, I, I can remember a couple of parents, you know, excited that they didn't have to do the math and the kid did <laughs> and they, they were able to flick the spinner. So, so some of that anxiety, uh, you know, from some of the parents, it's almost like it, if we can, if there's a way we can just, I don't know, make everybody feel okay about it. Like we're all on the same, you know, or, or you're on the level that you are on and that's okay. But we can, we can get you to the next level if, if you think a little bit deeper about it. You know, a lot of times we, we're afraid of something based on what somebody else has said. Oh, my mom's not good at math, so I'm not good at math. Or my dad's not good at science, so I'm not good at science or something like that. But um, we, we're clearly steering away from that lane. And uh, the kids are now starting to uh, embrace what they know. And uh, now that they're you know a lot of kids are not in the classroom with, you know, all the kids, like how it used to be, that kid can actually focus, you know, like almost like one-on-one. I was watching my daughter um, do some online learning, and and I wanted to help her, but um, the way it would set up, she had to answer the question on her own, and then um, either you get it right or you get it wrong, and they give you two more opportunities, and then if you get it wrong three times, then it's kind of like, yep, yeah, that that's one of those ones that you need to focus on, and I was trying to tell her, you know, sometimes you got to you got to pull out specific words and you got to you know, you got to pull some extra stuff on in, just like when you look at Fortnite and you pull extra clues in with that, you got to pull extra clues in for this lesson right here cuz you're smarter than this lesson. You know, it's like speaking that confidence into that kid and then when it clicks, then we then we won. The light bulb is is off now and now they can they can drive in the fast lane. <laughs> So I'm going to pass this one back on over to Nick.
0: I'll also call out to Jimmy, use the word coherence between the out-of-school space and the in-school space. And I think that concept is so huge for how we move forward in the sector. I'll shout out something here in Philly that I have a lot of hope for, which is the Philly STEM Equity Collective. And I started work on their STEM uh, on their steering committee in the last week. And the conversation is all about that exactly, like building coherence, between the school district and all these other people in the community who are doing this important work. So hopefully that's, we felt very alone in that space for a number of years because we were we were doing that work for a while before the pandemic, but it seems like a lot of attention is, is driving there, which is awesome.
2: That is awesome. Let me riff on that for a second and just say, I think one danger or risk that people take, that we all take when we talk about coherence is that I worry people are going to assume that means standardization and that every kid needs to be learning the same thing at the same time in the same way. Like, in reality, it means the exact opposite, that coherence allows for this differentiation. And that as long as, you know, you have educators who are supporting some set of skills, um, then you can actually have lots of opportunities to co-create and live within the context and experience of what's relevant for people. So we, we see this a lot in the side of family engagement. It's like, we don't expect every family to talk about STEM in the same way, but we know that every family has authentic STEM experiences coming up for them in the context of their daily life. And so how do we celebrate the rich cultural context that families bring as an asset to the child STEM learning, and then not think about standardizing, you know, if, if the curriculum looks like this, then at home it needs to look like this. It can look like that and lots of that, and that can still cohere with what's happening in the school day and support what a, what a child is learning that's important to the teacher.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. That's awesome. And personally, my hope is that it actually helps to open up some space in the school day too, because the teachers themselves, you all being teachers, us being teachers – you know, when we talk to the fellows who are in our program now, the number one thing that they brought up was, I feel stifled. I feel like I'm in a box in my space. And we have brilliant people who are in front of kids every day, but they can't maximize their potential because of the restrictions that are placed around them. So hopefully it, also, it not only creates opportunity in the out-of-school time space to continue exploring, but also has some sort of positive impact on the school day as well. So in terms of grant making, um, and I'll, you know, Gemma, I'll go to you first, and then if you want to pass it over to Uchenna, uh, could you share a little bit more detail about how you've evolved your thinking around the grant making process and strategy to better support organizations in the portfolio, maybe, you know, pre, during, post-pandemic, if there's been any shift at all, but generally how that evolution has happened during your time at Overdeck?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think having transparency about how we fund has always been a priority for us, and being able to structure ourselves as a learning organization and be responsive to what's happening, is also incredibly important. So we've made shifts before COVID and during, and and now you know we'll continue to learn and develop our grant making strategy based on what we're hearing from the field. But I would say, like philanthropy has the potential to be supportive of positive social change. But like we have to work together as philanthropy organizations and so that's always been part of our strategy is to be mindful about what other foundations are trying to achieve with their capital and how we can align and and maximize greater impact. Um, We are a venture inspired philanthropy organization so we are thinking often about the barriers that organizations face on their pathway to scale, and how we can clear those barriers. Through ecosystem-led efforts. So that could be advocacy, it could be research, it could be program validation through research, um, or you know, learning across organizations through setting up networks. Uh, it, and then, of course, funding some of the direct impact work to make sure programs have the general operating support that they need to cover their entire organizational budgets, you know, uh depth of, of professional development for staff and Uh, facilities and, you know, you can't do the work without the lights on kind of stuff. Um, But then on top of that, like responding specifically to COVID-19 to make our work better, we thought about how do we make our grantee relationships even stronger? How do we keep our team collaborating, energized, informed, you know, effective as grant makers? And so that led us to, I think, a deeper conversation about how we could streamline our, our diligence process, our renewal process, Um, But on top of that, how can we give more than funding as part of our philanthropy? How can we also provide non-monetary support, connect grantees to resources, to one another, to opportunities to contribute, you know, to have thought leadership? And I think this sort of commitment to multi-year grants, longer term partnerships and larger grants also comes with our deep investment in the areas that organizations are working. So we're doing our best to not only increase our grant sizes wherever possible, but also to make that support um, happen beyond the check.
3: I want to double click on the non-monetary support. Like when I was a, a grantee, you know, very often, okay, you get this bag of money. They're like, okay, great. We really hope you have made these uh, advancements and developments in a year and we'll see you then. Best of luck. And then they just kind of sign off, or they just assume that you'll check in at six months and check in at the end with, with all of this wonderful progress. And you know, I mean, you're the organization, you know the best way to implement these solutions in your, in your, in your uh, community, but support from the philanthropic organization is really important because again, sometimes we can bring that 30,000 foot view and, and, and assist. So we've really leaned into supports like, you know, evaluation and measurements or, or listening to beneficiaries, which are students or, or helping to establish a theory of change and, and really trying to be a partner Throughout the grant process, so you know we're not just saying we hope you make these these uh, these developments, but we're going to do the best we can to support you in making that. And then also not just wanting to hear the great things, but we want to hear the challenges as well. Like what what's you know what's making the work difficult? Because that might be something that another grantee is experiencing. And let's not let's not be afraid of surfacing those challenges because it doesn't mean that you know we all of a sudden don't want to fund you, it means let's find an innovative way of approaching this together. Um, and one other thing that I was really excited to be a part of this year uh, was, uh, was our grantee convening. You know, especially with with COVID leading to a lot of organizations feeling like they're in a silo and they're dealing with a lot of these things on their own. Um, we were able to bring our grantees together. Granted it was it was virtual, so you know we we had to be really intentional about trying to have a sense of community and you know we're all in this together. But it was really cool to like bring all of our grantees together and, and, and learn some things from, from some external facilitators that you know we're not necessarily the experts, but we at least know some individuals that are really, really uh uh, you know, that have a lot of uh, important skill sets in some of these areas. And we can all listen you know, from them and then you know go back to the drawing board and, and see what we can implement uh, for, for your particular
0: case. and I'll shout out that convening was awesome if for no other reason than to just meet other people leading in the space. I know that both myself and then Colleen from our team, who are gonna do a podcast with this season as well, uh, we just really love the opportunity to, to chat with other folks who are facing similar challenges. And that, the value of that, you know, we have so little time to really operate in that space and it becomes much harder in the pandemic because there are no real social spaces for that type of conversation to exist in mass. So that was super valuable. The other thing that I'll say too, which I think is really unique about the way that you all go about being a partner, I think that word is really appropriate, but the the reality is that money is needed to do the work, right, like we, (laughs) we have a laundry list of things that we wish we could do or want to do, save for the money to actually execute it. Um, And you all have never been shy about actually like trying to get other people excited and on board in the funding community, which I believe to be really rare. I mean, I I can count on less than one hand, the number of funders who regularly do that with us. So that is, you know, it's not always successful, but just the attempt to try and build that momentum around partner organizations, I think is very unique. Maybe in line with that thinking, I'm curious for the both of you in what ways would you like to see the foundation community and the philanthropic community continue to evolve better to support nonprofits based upon your own experience?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, I would say one issue we've yet to overcome is organizations selecting a single outcome they care about and trying to maximize for that outcome, ignoring that there are so many other factors at play. And I think particularly in this era of trying to accelerate learning, uh, we have to be as mindful as we possibly can about the entire day, the entire child, you know, the whole child, um, and and just take a broader view of the, you know, the ecosystem that that supports the child's learning throughout, um, their you know, eighteen years of developmental trajectory before they become an adult. So if we can be a little bit more open-minded, I think, and and uh, it, this comes down to our data practices as well, right? Like not tunnel visioning on a single outcome. Uh, that would be really helpful. I think another area that we've talked about a bit is cost analysis and thinking about what are the really cost-effective opportunities in education? Um, where are there some low-hanging fruit in terms of, you know, things that might only cost a school district a dollar or less than a dollar per kid but could unlock serious impact along the way? Um. That's a piece of it, and then I think Uchenna earlier spoke to this idea of uh, beneficiary voice. I think co-design, and there are more foundations than ever listening to the communities they hope to serve. But how do we share power and um, create structures where communities can do collective decision making? Um, and I think that's necessary, like in in the education system, to shift some of the dynamic um, that's happening, especially if you look at, you know, teachers and districts and lots of, you know, politicking that costs us important effort and time and energy um, of leaders within these communities. And then finally, I would say, like, supporting research. You know, we're always generating new knowledge, but we're not always writing it down and sharing it. And so, like, funders that can enhance the field-wide understanding, um, that's going to lead to the adoption of evidence-based practices way faster than, like, you know, push pushing that research out um, through one of the traditional dissemination channels like a research conference where most of the people who go to the conference are researchers. <laughs> so let's think a little bit more, uh, you know, creatively about the audience of uh, what we are learning and, and how to make that actionable.
3: Yeah, I very much agree. I think it's very easy to say, okay, I want to fund the program that uh, makes the student have like this percentage increase in their, you know, in the, this math metric, right? Like I want to see this academic improvement. It's a lot harder to say, you know, I, I want to focus in on uh, the sense of belonging of a student growing or the sense of, of uh, you know, a student being able to see themselves in a STEM career. And those are metrics that are, are very often a lot harder to, to wrap your head around. or may, might be a lot more longitudinal. There might just be hairier metrics to, to be able to assess, especially if you're trying to do things in a year-by-year, you know, year, short-term, short-term kind of approach. So finding ways to creatively assess and support those SEL benefits, I, I, I'm really excited at, at, at that as a potential area for, for philanthropy to you know, uh, improve. Additionally, and this isn't necessarily an area that um, our portfolio focuses a lot on, but I think there's a huge workforce issue inside and outside the classroom in education. Um, and especially in the out-of-school time space, in out-of-school time STEM space, um, there's not a lot of pathways, like, you know, you want to be an out-of-school time STEM worker, how do you go from like, you know, facilitating this program to helping coordinate programs, maybe administrating things on a regional scale to finally being an executive director of your own out-of-school time organization, like that that, that that, pathway is really, uh, it's, it's, it's not very clear cut and it, it looks very different from a lot of different contexts. So finding ways to support out-of-school time workers and, and help clarify that, that, uh, that avenue from, you know, you want to be involved in the space. You may not be a classroom teacher, but you're an educator of some sort. How can we help you have a long uh, career, uh, uh, impactful career, and a career that has you, you know, moving up the ladder, and a career that honestly pays you a, a wage that is that is able to support what you're doing. Like you know, if you like you said, you need money to run a program, you need money to put food on the table, and and be able to wake up the next day and spend hours upon hours upon hours supporting students. So um, you know, while we're supporting programs that work with students in the K through eight space, a lot of our organizations and a lot of our grantees. Um, have surfaced workforce as, as, as an issue. And hopefully some of our non-monetary supports can, can, can help round that out. And seeing that in other, other foundations, I think, uh, I think there's a large opportunity there.
0: Yeah, and those other measures that you talked about, Uchenna, the, the things that might be, quote unquote, hairier to wrap our heads around or to really see uh, direct impact from, oftentimes I feel like those are the things that are actually the real motivators for students, like when you were describing why you wanted to get into STEM education, you were like, "Oh well, I saw them having fun across the hall, right?" It was more about that visceral experience of seeing that and feeling that, not you know the need for a STEM workforce or the percentage impact that you could have. on think you know, oftentimes in life, when we think about our influences and the things that push us in different directions, it's often around motivation um, and inspiration. So, but you know, the way that we often report outcomes is not connected to that. Um, cool. Well, I appreciate you both joining us today. It's been a great conversation uh, and look forward to talking to you all again soon.
2: Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Coach Calvin. Great being with you both. Great being part of the podcast.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us. It's a lot of fun.
1: The Learn Fresh Podcast is produced by myself, Calvin Seibert, Nick Monzi, and Sumner Becker, with additional production assistance from Caitlin Patterson. Sumner Becker also does our engineering, editing,
0: and music. The Learn Fresh Podcast is part of the Side Audio Network, an audio community founded by Jeremiah Ote and Naranjan Kumar. The Side Audio Network hosts podcasts that aim to transfer trust between people and communities through storytelling and conversation.